Good. All right. Welcome to episode number nine of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. And I'm here with returning guest Tom Ratzlaff. He's kindly agreed to come back and uh, talk about five movies this time. And uh, at the end of our recording of the last show, you had mentioned nostalgia for something I also have nostalgia for, uh, the drive-in movie. You, we were looking through my movie collection to see some movies that reminded me, reminded you of a time, particularly like mostly in the uh, kind of early 70s, where you would go to the drive-in and see certain films. So we, we put together some movies here. One movie is from the late 60s, from 1969's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but all the others are from the first uh, two or three years of the 1970s. What is it about the drive-in that brings back these fond memories for you? I think part of it is the fact that the very first movie I ever saw in my life, anywhere but on TV, and there weren't many movies on TV back then. Yeah. The very first movie I ever saw was in a drive-in. It was in Watrous, Saskatchewan, and my parents took us to see 101 Dalmatians. Oh, yeah. The ancient Disney animated. I think that's probably part of it, you know? That plus uh, when I was in high school, and an older friend got a driver's license long before I did. We decided one weekend that we wanted to uh, uh, go out and have some fun. Mm -hmm. There isn't much fun to be had in Aberdeen. And so we'd drive a few miles to the Sundown Drive-In in Saskatoon at the intersection of Highways 5 and 41. It's now a place where they park school buses. Yes. I think it was partly those, those two reasons why I kind of miss drive-in movies. Well, that and, you know, the, the adrenaline pumping when you're afraid you're going to be arrested by a SWAT team because you accidentally drove off with the speaker still in the window. Oh, yeah. It ripped off the cord, you know. The radio. Sorry? Yeah, before they used the radios, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They started to do it through a radio channel, but they, they still had those speakers. But I, I remember getting those yeah. speakers in, and sometimes it wasn't that smooth initially. It took a, sometimes at the beginning of uh, the first movie, it was, it was tough to sort of get the, the sound right, but... I mean, this Sundown Drive-In was the last one in Saskatoon. I'm, I'm sure I was there the last year that they offered it a, a few times. And I, I really do miss them. I was excited. A few years ago, there was some talk of bringing it back. And uh, I guess that, that didn't happen. So, yeah, no, I really yeah. miss them. And beforehand, we were talking about the idea of an all-night drive-in which uh, I was at the right age as a teenager to, to go to some of these and as a, a preteen. And they were every long weekend in basically from uh, from the, you know, Victoria Day long weekend uh, up until I think they even tried on the Thanksgiving weekend to, to, to run them, even though I don't think they were as populated and it was kind of colder than certainly the the uh, the Labor Day all night drive in felt like kind of the last moments of summer in some ways for uh, for us as far as going to a movie and would see four or five uh, movies and uh, often uh, the sun would be coming up when the last movie was playing. And I, I, I went to those several times. I have a lot of great memories uh, of that um, throughout my teenage years, really to my early, early adulthood, but before, uh, before they, they, they closed them all down. Yeah. One of the films we were going to talk about and again, uh, we're still dealing with the COVID-19 situation here in this, Show is being recorded uh, through Zoom. 
Um, there was a movie we needed to watch together, but because we're in separate places, we're not able to watch it together. Uh, the Last Picture Show was going to be quite an apropos uh, entry here about this town and how when their movie theater closes and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so there are a lot of moments in that when I watched it initially when I was preparing to include it in here. Uh, but it wasn't possible for you to uh, to rewatch it here, so we decided to go with five instead of six this time. But there's some moments in that right. movie which are very much like kind of the sadness of seeing uh, the drive-ins go in Saskatoon, and as we're starting to see less and less movie theaters. There's a yeah. question about what's going to happen to movie theaters after this is done, because now they're releasing all their newest releases are going straight to uh, being played at home. They're, they're worried that it's kind of the, the last nail in the coffin for movie theaters, which would be really unfortunate because it's, it's still nice to actually like go out and go and experience a movie in a movie theater. And I'm, I'm envious of some, there's lots of driving still in the States in, uh, in Los Angeles. I know they, they, they still have uh, plenty of those around, but for a uh, climate like Saskatoon, I think it wasn't viable to have a seasonal business like that. So. Well, it's possible that there'll be, a negative impact on live theater too. Yes. But what I'm hoping, what I'm hoping very much in, in both cases is that uh, after all this time of isolation and only being able to enjoy these things at home, we'll go back to the theaters partly because it's a shared experience and that's the one thing that, that we're missing in all of it. The freedom to get out of the house and just, you know, go some someplace public with other people, which we've yeah. always taken for granted. So uh, the five movies, I mentioned the one that we uh, aren't, and I did mention one of the ones we are gonna talk about. So we're gonna take a look at a Woody Allen film, Bananas. Uh, I believe this is my first time reviewing a Woody Allen film on my podcast. I, I had uh, an episode with, uh, good time right now to shout out uh, Rank and Review, Larry Parsons show. I, I try to do a shout out every episode. Uh, we, we did a show on Woody Allen uh, oh, a few weeks ago, actually a couple months now. So Woody Allen's Bananas, it was his third film as a writer-director, but the, kind of the first one where it truly became a Woody Allen film where he had a little bit more control. Uh, then we're going to take a look at uh, Bob Ralphison's Five Easy Pieces, and then uh, another uh, terrific filmmaker, Robert Altman's movie M.A.S.H., uh, then George Roy Hill's movie, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which I mentioned before. Uh, again, the only one from uh, the 1960s, 1969. And we're going to end off with Clint Eastwood's directorial debut, Play Misty for Me. And now, Woody Allen, with a few words about his new film. What's the title of your movie, Woody? Bananas? Yes, Bananas. Uh, the name of the movie is, is uh, Bananas. Bananas, Bananas. What part do you play in the movie? I play the part of uh, Fielding Mellish, who is a, uh, a, a tester of products at a small company in New York. We can show you how to turn it out. We can show you how you can save money on a cost basis. And you think we'll sell? How is it, Mellish? Can you hear the music clearly? You should be a great seller in California. And who, through a circuitous turn of events... <laughs> So long, suckers! Finds himself leader of a Latin American country. Mama! 
a young Mr. Hernandez, the official interpreter. Welcome to the United States. Welcome to United States. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so in uh, 1971, Mr. Woody Allen was uh, very well known as a stand-up comedian. He'd been a, a writer for television, and he was starting to make his, you know, transfer his act into films a little bit. And uh, his third film is Bananas. And the general idea of this movie is uh, there's he plays a bumbling New Yorker who uh, gets dumped by his activist girlfriend, and then he travels to a tiny Latin American nation and becomes involved in a rebellion. Uh, and that's the general idea. I think it it would be good, you know, and maybe you want to talk about this a little bit to mention the bookends to this film. Uh, I'm not sure younger audiences would understand it as much, but we start, the movie starts off and it's one of uh, Woody Allen's boldest openings to a film uh, where there's a Latin American dictator who's about to be assassinated and it's uh, staged and covered like a, uh, a sporting event, almost like a boxing match. And is uh, the play-by-play is done by Howard Cassell, who is a very famous sports broadcaster. thing I always fail to mention is uh, there are spoilers with this show. So uh, for us to talk about this uh, the way we want to, we probably will end up having to ruin some things. So if you haven't seen these movies, and I actually am a fan of all these movies, so you may want to watch them before you get too deep into these reviews. But uh, the end of the film uh, has a similar type of scene uh, with uh, Cassell, but it was uh, a a different type of event that he's uh, covering as a sports event there. And so I thought all that was, was quite quite clever. So um, I'm interested in your opinion of uh, of Bananas. I know you're a Woody Allen fan, as am I. Well, I, I enjoyed Bananas enough the first time I saw it that I went out of my way to find other opportunities to see Woody Allen movies, right? Um, the early funny stuff is, uh, Bananas is pretty typical of the early funny stuff, but some of the films he made years later are, you know, quite profound. Anna and her sisters, for example, is, is still considered one of the finest movies. And uh, uh, and rightly so, even though some people are critical of it because of Woody Allen. But if we're just going to separate the man from the art here, Bananas was very brave at the time in, in some ways, because that was uh, that was a time when the powers that were in the United States were still openly trying to, um, they were opposed to a lot of the opposition that was being voiced, all kinds of things that the USA was doing, particularly internationally. The Vietnam War, of course, was was arguably the biggest one, but uh, CIA's meddling in in particularly Latin American countries mm-hmm. was uh, being criticized by quite a few people, and those people did suffer some consequences. I mean, at that time, that was only a few years after the McCarthy era purge of of artists who were wrongly accused of being communists and were basically um, silenced. Not necessarily killed but you know um so in that context bananas was one of those films and actually mash too when we get to that one one of those films that that was brave enough to be openly critical of u.s foreign policy uh, and survived it wasn't long after that public opinion forced the american government to pull out of vietnam as well all that and they were losing but you know so in that context historically bananas is certainly a movie worth looking at if you're at all interested in, in the history of that time period the late 60s and early 70s there i think i've exhausted exhausted that point yeah so here, here's my question to you do you think alan really cared about all of that because i you are selling it as quite a deep political movie when really it's 
it's basically about uh, this guy who is, you know, trying to impress this woman about how deep he is when he isn't really all that deep. And then he gets himself into a whole series of ridiculous situations. And really, most of the movie is a cartoon. In some ways, you know, I'm going to sound really hard on him here. I think I talked about in the show with Larry is before Annie Hall, no doubt Woody Allen was talented and hilarious, but a lot of his humor was very adolescent. And what I see is he had this kind of man boy character ending up in all of these situations where he could play up the Woody Allen of his stand-up routine and improvise a a bunch of uh, stupid bits where he's in kind of dangerous situations and then he end up ends up becoming this uh political leader and he starts off working for the revolutionaries and then when they overtake the government he sees the problems with that and how how he would be the best person to 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 run these countries and, and all this but it's it's all because this guy kind of fumbles his way into these situations. Now, maybe if we're talking about Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton starring in this thing, I might not be as as, as critical, but I, I feel like he was kind of using that political landscape just as as a bit. And and that's where I, I struggle with. I should also mention um, that his co-star in the movie was his one of his wives. Uh, by the time Bananas came out, they, they had divorced. Lois Lasser, who is uh, not terribly well-known anymore, but a, a comedic uh, actress. She's, she's a character who's given pretty much no depth whatsoever. She's, she's kind of there, and she th- sees through him and dumps him, and then he does all of this stuff, and then he's interesting again, and then they end up together. I mean, there, there wasn't much to the romance, uh, and I think the whole thing was just a showcase for Woody Allen to do some physical bits, some stuff even kind of ripped off of uh, Modern Times by Chaplin. Well, if you're going to rip off someone, rip off the best, uh, yes, right? Yeah. I, you know, one of the, one of the um, points of satire is to reveal the ridiculousness of any particular situation. And I think Alan manages to do that, the ridiculousness of the U.S. interference, the ridiculousness of, of the uh, uh, attitudes of some of the rebels. I mean, if you want to talk about a, a, a crazy character, look at the rebel leader who, when he becomes leader, yeah. issues all those absurd proclamations, makes Donald Trump seem intelligent. Some of, uh, uh, some of your criticisms might be seen as positives in the sense that, again, given the time period, uh, the more ridiculous and, and silly the criticism is, the easier it is for for the palate. Um, Lois Lasser's character, for example, yeah, she's very superficial. So is her support of the revolutionaries, mm-hmm. as was, it, it was the fashion of the day. Because of all the opposition to the Vietnam War among young people, it was the fashion of the day to be opposed to a bunch of things openly without sincerity. Um, I, I won't mention the name, but one of the people I knew at university not long after these years that we're talking about later became a very right-wing broadcaster mm-hmm. who is uh, almost belligerently anti-left anything, anti-liberal anything, all L liberal. And uh, back at the time, he also would speak out against things like the Americans' use of 
CIA to interfere in, in Latin America. Uh, so to me, his, uh, his opposition to those things was just fashionable, peer pressure, and ridiculous. Obviously, he didn't believe that. Um, and I think part of the, the uh, intelligence of bananas is that does that very thing. It, it satirizes both extremes, both sides. And uh, the, the uh, uh, most laughable thing about it is that as absurd and superficial as Woody Allen's character is in bananas, he still comes across as one of the most sensible. And some of the things he does in that brief time when he is the leader seem reasonable and sensible compared to the other extremes, extremes that have been tried or that are being proposed. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that that Alan was only going for laughs. I don't know. Okay. Uh, certainly, his thinking and his his uh, um, themes were not as mature as they were a bit later. But then, what young persons are? Yeah, no. It, it, he was very very new filmmaker. I think this is the first time he somewhat attempted to tell a story with with his script. I guess, and this is a, again maybe a couple things you're saying that I'm a little bit critical of. I, I'm not sure he really cared that much about the politics involved. He he does paint sort of that generation that may have you've been attracting to this film the anti-vietnam generation is as being that superficial and uh, kind of ridiculous. And the only reason they'd be interesting is if they're an attractive blonde haired woman. In the personal taste, I like my satire a little bit more straight. Like yeah. Alan yeah. knew it was funny, was like kind of winking at the audience. Ha ha, get it, get it. I'm funny, I'm funny, I'm funny. Which really lacked the subtlety of his later work. Like he became a, and, and not that he wasn't an amazing writer at the time, but he became a, a master of dialogue. Yes. Even later in that, um, that decade, but none of that really comes across cross here. There isn't a single scene where I can think of, when I think of a Woody Allen well-written, well-constructed scene, and again, I still think it was, he was he was just so so immature. True. His approach to the film. I, well, the first time I saw this, I, I really, really liked this, and each time I see it, and again, seeing it for this, I'm, I'm finding, you know, I want to say I like the movie, but I'm, I'm having to be quite critical, and that's the case with a lot of the movies that we're talking about, where yeah. the first time I approached them, uh, I, I love them. Call, even call them classics, but this time I saw a few more flaws than I had before so and this one in particular so that's kind of where I, where I stand with it I, I'm not as positive as I once was I like Woody Allen for sure I have all of his movies that I've been able to get you know Amazon yeah. still one of his movies held hostage there that they haven't released and for the completest in me would love to have that movie as well but uh, I, I do have to be pretty hard on on bananas here just kind of revisiting it a couple fun facts there uh, and it's not one but two movies we're gonna be talking about today where Sylvester Stallone well before Rocky makes an appearance uh, Stallone yeah. appears yeah. in the subway as uh, this uh, mugger who uh, yes. <laughs> was trying to steal purse from this woman and, and then Woody Allen is kind of trying to stay out of danger, but then he does this silly thing to become this hero. Again, that scene is just absolutely ridiculous. It's just a whole series of ridiculous scenes. I guess if you like kind of broad-based, not-so-subtle humor, but I guess trying to make it deeper by setting it in this kind of volatile political landscape and saying that everybody involved with these coups and these 
revolutions are ridiculous. Yeah, there, there is something worth saying there. I just yeah. don't know if Alan himself centering the movie and a lot of the, like, the romance angle and all that stuff, if that was all taken out, it might have been a more effective film. We'll be talking yeah. about MASH later on. MASH is a, a satire as well. I don't see MASH winking to the audience quite as much. You could maybe make no, it no. some scenes, but not 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 to this level here. So that's why I, I, I have an easier time recommending MASH than I do uh, Bananas. The Triple Award winner, Five Easy Pieces. Best Picture of the Year. Best Director, Bob Rafelson. Best Supporting Actress, Karen Black. Five Easy Pieces. about the good life, Elton, because it makes me puke. It's the service, speedy, fast, fast. People are filthy. I think that's the biggest thing that's wrong with people. Dirt isn't bad. It's filth. Filth is bad. That's what starts maggots and riots. Oh, don't touch Daddy's very ill. Don't you think you should see him at least once? Father and Herbert and I had a summit conference concerning you. They wanted to hire a detective to ferret you out, and I talked them out of it, because I felt that whatever you were doing, you had a perfect right to do, no matter how nonsensical your ventures might be. I move around a lot. Not because I'm looking for anything, really, but... because... I'm getting away from things that get bad if I stay. All right, we're going to go back now a couple of years uh, from Bananas to Five Easy Pieces in 1970. And it stars uh, this obscure fellow named Jack Nicholson. He plays a dropout from upper-class America who picks up work along the way on oil rigs when his life isn't spent in a squalid succession of bars and motels and Five Easy Pieces not terribly funny i don't think it's it's oh, no. uh, very much uh it's you know th these aren't all comedies that we're looking at this is very much an existential drama i i think there were two movies around this time that kind of announced the potential of jack nicholson just before this and again it was from kind of the same studio and a little bit of a movement in cinema in the late 60s and early 70s uh, easy rider yeah. Easy rider is a classic I and mean, someday i'm going to be reviewing easy rider on here you know, not to spoil too much about Easy Rider, you don't get enough Jack. You get a yeah, not a Jack. Here you get a lot <laughs> more Jack. Jack is the star of uh, Five Easy Pieces. And this is a movie I come back to every few years. And it's, it's certainly not one of his flashiest performances. On the whole, he, he stays pretty, pretty serious, pretty down to earth. Sometimes Nicholson, the critics, say that he, he plays uh, some notes rather big. But this is, um, some people, that I, I have talked to people who say that this is one of their favorite of his performances. I think it's up there for me. Maybe not my uh, number one or even number two favorite. But he plays uh, Robert Dupea, who's part of this 
family of, uh, you know, really aristocrats and uh, quite high level musicians. And um, they're based in uh, the Northeastern United States in the Washington area. And he's walked away from all of that privilege and is trying to live in a kind of a, a working class uh, environment. When we first see him, he's in Texas working on oil rigs. Uh, he has a, a girlfriend played memorably by Karen Black, who was also in, uh, who was also in Easy Rider and several other films. Um, you know, she is not that comfortable in an upper class world and she does suffer from a fair amount of depression. And Nicholson is not the best boyfriend at all. He treats her <laughs> horribly Hardly, yeah. throughout. And uh, as we go on, uh, you know, it kind of starts off with, with, with this working class thing, then it goes into a little bit of this road trip as Nicholson and Black go to visit his family. But at the same time, he's trying to keep her away from his family because he fears their judgment. So that's a long-winded explanation of five easy pieces, but I, I want to uh, get your your take on it because it's, it's probably been a few years since you last saw it. Yeah, yeah, it has, and and actually, uh, I think I think even more highly of it now than I did before because of some remarkable moments visually mm -hmm. in this movie. The f the first of them, the first really powerful one, occurs in the movie just after his best friend is arrested, which happens at work, and and there's a shot of Nicholson who's down on his knees in the dirt, surrounded by a few uh, uh, jack pumps and this gray, lifeless sky in the background. And Nicholson's somewhat silhouetted in the shot. And it's, it's visual art. And it's such a sad, hopeless picture. Of course, it's perfect for the moment and for everything else uh, about the film. Um, that, that was the first visual moment that really struck me. And that's something that I had definitely forgotten about. Or maybe I didn't really notice it the first time. But there, there are so many shots like that, whether they're interiors or, or broader um, exterior landscape type shots. Of course, some of the film is set on the coast of the Pacific Ocean in Washington State. That's beautiful rainforest and, and the Pacific Ocean. And you can't miss. They're going to be beautiful, but they, they capture the mood as well with a bit of fog here or rain. And that's something that I'd forgotten about, just how well shot and directed this movie is. And yet it's beautiful yet bleak. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's, well, not, it's not uh, well-crafted, you know, uh, by like... Uh, a really uh, flashy, high-budget uh, cinematographer. Th this movie, it comes from a very independent uh, spirit and independent place. R Ralphison, I think th the goal of, and Nicholson was very much in part of the creative process, of, um, as well as people like Peter Fonda and, and Dennis Hopper, and trying to get this American independent uh, movement going in the late 60s with cinema. And so I, I, I think they were kind of resisting the kind of the studio um, big budget musical approach uh, yeah. happening. So it all this is it looks really good, but also looks really grainy and realistic. Um, yeah. Lives of the characters. Uh, well, there, there was a, a, a movement in film. I think this one is credited with being a part of that movement to tell stories in different ways and to tell uh, even even more importantly, tell different stories. Mm -hmm. kind of stories that the McCarthy era put an end to. Yeah. You know, some of the best old pictures were were art in the true sense, meaning they were intended to try to improve the world 
get people to realize what's wrong with things. So many films in the 50s and the earlier part of the 60s were really just fluff. You know, they were feel-good movie, but that's all there was. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong or unartistic about a feel-good movie, but when that's all there is and when they deliberately try to avoid even mentioning anything controversial. Well, I think the notion of having your protagonist be uh, an unlikable character and it, it's there are points when you start to kind of understand Robert and how he operates and any moment you're about to feel some sort of sympathy for him he will be absolutely horrible to somebody uh, who doesn't deserve it and certainly Rayat takes the worst of it uh, that friend you mentioned his best friend who he actually ends up in that relationship treating him absolutely horrible and like insulting him personally. Uh, His friend, uh, character's name Elton, played by uh, Billy Greenbush. Yeah, and really there's there's kind of a lot of stuff with his family too where uh, where it's tough. The highlights of, there's many highlights to me, Nicholson's performance. There's a very famous scene which uh, is apparently something that Nicholson actually did where he's in a restaurant and he wants to order something, but it's against the rules of the restaurant. And then he tries to find a way to work around it. And he's, you know, talking about like, he's, he's, he's trying to get toast and he's trying to get an omelet and, uh, and it's like about the hold the chicken scene. Just yeah. absolutely brilliant. And it's, it's one of those, like there's a big Nicholson moment at the end, great payoff to it. But Nicholson actually, this is something that actually happened to him. And he, I think, dealt with it in a similar way to how he ended up dealing with it here. Raffleson and Nicholson um, were friends and I think had, had remained friends for years. And uh, he allowed Nicholson to come up with a lot of stuff like this. Yeah. So there's that scene, which is great. There's other kind of silent things that Nicholson does throughout, which is a little bit more reacting as opposed to acting. Then there's there's a scene again, not not to ruin it too much, but there's a scene with his father. His father cannot communicate anymore, and there's a lot of baggage in that relationship. A big reason why he ran away from this life was because of his relationship with his father. Yeah. So his father is sitting there uh, in a wheelchair and he cannot cannot verbally respond, and Nicholson is alone and unloads everything that is on his chest and. It's a very heartfelt scene. It's one of those moments where you sort of feel sympathy for him, but it's not, I mean, it could be argued as a for your consideration type of a scene, but Nicholson improvised that entire monologue and he was channeling something in his life that he needed to get out through that. So uh, it's one of these moments where you could see how, you know, Nicholson was always, he's got the Brad Pitt curse of being considered a movie star, but he happens to actually be a really talented actor too. And you see it, you know, it didn't feel forced in any way, but there are some tears and some real feelings that come out, but it isn't like behind some, some musical score, which is supposed to melt our hearts or anything like that. So those are the scenes in particular I'd, I'd like to mention. All that said, and you might choose to disagree with me on this one, my last viewing of this, I actually think Karen Black gives the best performance in the movie. Uh, she was nominated for uh, an award for this, too. Oh, no, sorry. She received the New York Film Critics Award 1970 yeah. for Best Supporting Actress. She was yeah. nominated for the Oscar, as was Nicholson. It was nominated for Best Picture as well. Best Picture and Best 
Yeah, best picture. It it was the only very... only one of the nominees that year that didn't win any awards. <laughs> so I I think again it was and we've seen this story a lot with kind of um, edgy uh, revolutionary independent films that get the nominations but don't necessarily get the wins here. It's also one of the few films at that time that was where the screenplay had actually been um, written by a female that that got a nomination. Carol Eastwood. Uh, uh, wrote the screenplay and uh, Raffleson was was uh, kind of the story writer on it but uh, the screenplay was written by Eastman very very impressive film uh, again yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like you every time I see it the more I see it the more I appreciate it yeah I I recommend it I'm, I'm not sure how many people have seen five easy pieces uh, it was kind of big in you know big in the 70s and those who are movie geeks like myself r- really really enjoy it but I, I'm not sure it's gotten as much of an audience as some other films that uh, starred Nicholson and Karen Black uh, the country music angle should be mentioned she really likes to sing and she tries to enjoy life but her depression like really hits her hard she plays both notes really really well I, I, I like the soundtrack too the soundtrack to the movie is is, is quite good a, a lot of these movies have fairly famous songs connected to them mm-hmm. when we talk stand about stand by your man yeah stand, stand by, your, by man. your man in this case yeah. you know when we talk about butch Cassidy and the sundance kid and mash oh, yeah. music music plays a role in uh, in a lot of these films here so misty and play misty for me as well which we'll talk yes about. yes yeah. <laughs> yeah anything else uh you want I want to say about five easy pieces. I feel like I've been talking too much again. A couple of things. Or at least there were a couple of things. I've forgotten one now. That never happens to me. Uh, one of them is you mentioned music and, and black. I'd forgotten what a lovely voice she has. Mm-hmm. And it shows in this film later when she's not trying to channel Tammy Wynette's fang. She has a lovely voice. <laughs> but she's a real yeah. person singing. And a real person singing... Yes especially in that world, would try to mimic Tammy Wynette or, or, or whoever her musical hero is. So it does make True. sense. And, and it wouldn't necessarily be just one voice either. No. There, later in, in the film, she's singing part of a song. In the, it's in the car. I don't remember the song, but um, the voice is not at all country. Anyway, so this, there's, there's even that aspect to her performance. Yeah. She obviously came to understand characters with depression and and plays the extremes well in a movie dealing with mental health in 1970 i mean yeah like, even though it's only a it's sub- now and yeah. 2020 so it's, it's a 50 year old yeah. movie now uh, again I, yeah. I very much recommend five easy pieces kieran that you do too yeah absolutely i think we're a little bit closer on this one than we were bananas a united states army field hospital somewhere near the front lines this place out. See what the nurses are like. That one, the sultry bitch with the fire in her eyes. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. Who are those men? Friends of yours, Mr. I think you will find these accommodating. They're quite dry. Don't you use olives? We do have to make certain concessions to the war. We're three miles from the front line. This is the story of two indispensable military surgeons. They had the army over a barrel. But did they take advantage of it? Yes. MASH, a motion picture that raises some important moral questions. And then it drops them. 
What are you two hoodlums doing in this hospital? Well, what's the matter with her today? Look, Mother, I want to go to work in one hour. We are the pros from Dover. Somebody get that dirty old man out of this operating theater. And then give me at least one nurse who knows how to work in close without getting her tits in my way. I wonder how a degenerated person like that could have reached a position of responsibility in the Army Medical Corps. He was drafted. All right, we're going to stick with 1970. Talk about a movie I mentioned before, satire uh, called MASH. And if you did not know that there is a movie called MASH, uh, that might be because there was a TV series called MASH shortly after that. It became uh, historic television. It was uh, it was on air for many, many years, and it was uh, about very, very serious issues, yet really, really funny. And it made careers, in particular, the, the career of Alan Alda, who I, I mentioned a couple episodes ago when I was doing uh, very quick reviews of the last set of Best Picture nominees with the movie uh, he appears in Marriage Story. Alan Alda went up to Donald Sutherland, thanked mm-hmm. Donald Sutherland for his career. <laughs> <clears throat> because Donald Sutherland uh, plays the same character. If you have not watched the TV show or the movie, just a quick uh, overview here. It's about the staff of a Korean field hospital and uh, they use a lot of humor and hijinks to keep their sanity in the face of the horror of the Korean War. And certainly the TV show uh, used the Korean War, but I think also kind of extended in uh, to the Vietnam War as well. And of course, 1970, we're in the middle of the Vietnam War. So uh, this film had a, a certain political uh, impact, I think, much like you mentioned with Bananas and some, some of the other ones that uh, that we're going to be mentioning, because all of these movies were released during the Vietnam era. There were there were other careers that were made by this too. Gary Berghoff plays Radar in both the movie and the TV series, and G.W. Bailey, who was in the television series. You would see they the cast of the TV show, and they did a lot of theater for years and after. I saw Larry Linville in a play mm-hmm. in Las Vegas. There hadn't been a play in, well, he's claimed 20 years. He spoke with the audience after the curtain call, and he claimed it was about 20 years since Las Vegas had a professional play performance. It was all dance shows and so on. He, he put it this way, I've never forgotten it. said, until that, that uh, play that he was in, it was all hips, tits, and disappearing cat. I don't know why that phrase stuck with me. I know you'll probably edit well, that out. But. Oh, no, no. I think we'll keep it in there. Yeah. You know. He played Frank Burns in the TV series. MASH was also, uh, uh, in a way I talked about early, and um, we're, we're talking about the early directorial efforts of some of these pretty prominent people. Robert Altman had had done some theater and was a fairly prominent TV director, but MASH uh, put him on the map. And I, I don't know, I think I had mentioned this to you before, uh, because now watching it, you're like, oh, it's a Robert Altman film. What's the big deal? Because he had a very uh, interesting way of working, uh, which I'll talk yeah. about in a moment here for those who are half interested in his approach. But because he was, you know, a for hire director for this movie, he, he didn't have the power that he had later on in life. Both Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould approached the studio and said, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's going to ruin our careers and tried to get him fired from the project because what they were seeing was everybody was talking over each other at once and it, the scenes weren't making a lot of sense and they weren't going as they had been scripted. Altman's approach, which I think is absolutely brilliant and perhaps the only way to work with a like, large cast ensemble in film was they had, they had the script. It was given out to all the people and then what he did is he had cameras all over the place. He had boom mics all over the place and he would shoot the group scenes three times over and then he would edit in the best bits from the mm-hmm. audio that he would pick up. But constantly throughout, much like in real life, if you're in a room, there's a lot of voices and a lot of people talking at the same time. And so 
with every conversation that, that's happening, there's other conversations happening in the background. And sometimes he would kind of go in and out of those conversations. Uh, this was particularly true with MASH, with the operating room scenes, which were quite graphic yeah. and grisly for the time. There's there's a lot of a lot of blood in those scenes, um, for sure. But there's also scenes in uh, the mess tent and that kind of thing. Uh, and so there's constant noise happening. And if you're the actor, and this is a very not traditional way of uh, filming a movie, you can sort of understand why they were concerned. I argue, though, that it turns out really well. Yeah. The screenwriter, Ring Lardner Jr., who adapted uh, the novel, he was the only person uh, to win an Academy Award for this film. The irony in all of that is that he was so upset about the film because very little of his screenplay was actually used. Uh, Tom Skerritt said that, who was one of uh, the stars of the movie, that 80% of the movie was improvised. <laughs> Somehow it is a really interesting, cohesive um, satire of uh, the absurdity of war, but also a, a look at this very specialized group of people who are the healthcare providers during the war. We're battling what's being called in the media war right now. Healthcare pro providers are very, very important. We kind of see, um, and it's an interesting take, instead of the, the traditional medical dramas where everything is 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 really serious these guys are like joke around and clown around a lot and play pranks on each other and try to uh um you know play pranks on like the the head nurse played by Sal sally kellerman who is trying to enforce uh the rules and professionalism so there's a there's a lot of that in there uh, i have some criticisms of that in a moment but i want to hear your your opinion of mash um well i think overall in many ways it's exactly as you described it i'm not sure i would say it's quite as successful in those ways. Yes, it's it's a, a reasonably effective attire of war. It does do a great job of showing, I want to say, absurdity of war. Also about how in, in earlier war movies, one would have gotten the impression that um, other than where the uh, enemy's bullets are flying, someone is very much in control of everything that's going on. And MASH managed to show how random, pointless, and out of control the whole situation was. Um, that said, and this might partly be because of all of the improv that was going on, um, it feels at, at many times to me as though it loses sight of its story and its purpose, and some things are just included for the laughs. Uh, which sort of sounds like your criticisms are bananas, but uh, I, I couldn't help but compare it to the television series. I've seen MASH three times in my life. Once was uh, at the drive-in theater, you know, in 1971 or two. Once was in, I think, about 19, in the 1980s, I think it was, later 80s, when we were living in East End Saskatchewan and there was nothing to do and especially on the weekend we just stay up and late stay up late and just watch whatever movie was on the one television channel we yeah. from Swift Current um, and one evening they showed Bash that we watched and, and again now and to be honest with you um, I think the television series was so much more effective in doing everything that the movie was trying to do mm -hmm. and I think one of the reasons is that the writers of Mash and most of that was written by Alan Alda I think it was all more in control and so he could use art to more clearly get the messages across. Now, he had more um, than a decade, though, to be able to take that kind of control in the show. Like exactly. The early years were not, uh, Alda didn't have as much say in that, you know. Right, yeah. So, uh, partly that alters my view of the movie in a way that isn't fair, I suppose. But in another way, I think uh, the writer of the screenplay might have had a point. Uh, although I've never seen the screenplay, I have no idea how good it was or how good.
but it was not. But uh, for me, the movie MASH gets lost in improv, which by its nature often forgets its point and goes off in another direction. And, and so the movie is not as tight and focused as uh, as I think it could have been. Did you have an example of a, a scene or a sequence that's like that? As as interesting as the, the, the song in the film becomes, I think the whole Suicide is Painless subplot just becomes a ridiculous a ridiculous character uh, doing something frankly rather stupid and uh, so that, that whole it, it just didn't this time especially it did not wash with me this character is a highly educated person who's worked with other people his whole life he's a dentist and yet he somehow becomes so self-pitying it just it just didn't wash for me I mean I, I could argue that the point of that is that war has um, ha, has messed him up psychologically that he's got into this place that that's sequence now um, lots of stuff with the song too as well and it became the, the theme song without the lyrics for the TV show of course yeah, uh, yeah. which was interesting the Altman wanted the song to be as bad or as immature as he possibly could so he had his 14 year old son write it and you could tell that you know it, and, and that's why because it was this ridiculous song that they that they make up to to trick to trick this character the, but a big part of that whole that whole bit was well well parts of it are beautifully shot I mean they reenact the last supper yeah oh uh, it's, but it's not that they do it badly some stuff is really dated so it, this is one where it's a 50-year-old movie. So I said how, how progressive Five Easy Pieces is. There are two criticisms looking at it through the 2020 lens. The reason that the dentist, he, he, he feels like he, he cannot perform sexually anymore. So he's convinced himself that he is gay and that it would be better and for him to die than to be gay. All right. So that's like a really, really offensive message. And these this plan is to sort of get him to snap out of it. They pretty much like prostitute out one of the uh one of the nurses to uh at the end of this elaborate sequence where he thinks he's killing himself and they have this this wild funeral with the last supper and him going into a, a coffin and being given the last rites and all that uh and that song is performed um suicide is painless that was all for him to sort of get his his manhood back and get his confidence and then fine so you're right it, it, it is like i don't know how long that is 15 20 minutes that you could probably remove from the film. But I, I think there is a point to it, but I, I, I tend to agree, but my criticisms of it are a little bit more about how dated and how kind of offensive it is uh, in many ways. The other issue I yeah. have that, that I, I, I hadn't clocked in other viewings of it, again, showing my male privilege perhaps, is how very sexist the film is. Well, that was that, that is my biggest criticism. And yeah. it isn't only the lens of 2020. Um, very misogynistic. Very, and... and and um, I, I do remember the, the group of friends that used to go to the uh, the drive-in often included, uh, well, I'll just call them in memory, the two Jones, J-O-A-N. Um, they were both very strong young women who weren't afraid to share their opinions, and, and uh, they, they were not impressed by the trail of these nurses. Not only, not so much because they're, they're portrayed as sex objects. As when they're professionals. A lot they? of men, even now, treat women that way. But because these characters seem to enjoy that you know it's 
like they they play along because they like being the sex objects. And I'm sorry, most of the women that I knew then, just like now, get that at all. Now, I, not I, I the purpose of their existence. Thank you very much. Again, this is set in 1950s, and so I, I I don't know if if that's kind of the impact. I mean, we, we've seen in, in satires like shows like Mad Men and that kind of thing where secretaries, you know, the, like how the system worked there. And I mean, the idea of women being going off to war was still uh, really kind of a, a foreign concept even like in you know um mm-hmm. I, i'm just wondering if maybe it, maybe i'm giving too much credit here but it was a little bit of a, a comment on how women were were treated in an army unit uh or how nurses uh, were treated at the time but I, I i don't see the payoff there i don't i don't see exactly. the, the criticism of that as exactly. well. i see the criticism of other things but i don't see the criticism of that i mean we're supposed to like hawkeye pierce donald sutherland and, and duke forrest played by tom scarrett and I mentioned uh, Elliot Gould, who plays John McIntyre, Trapper John McIntyre. Um, I think they all deliver really, really good performances. I, I, I really of those three, Gould was kind of my favorite. But they, they are. I, this is another movie where our protagonists are not really that nice. No, you know, no. they aren't heroes. They aren't admirable people. Um, and I guess that might have been kind of the early '70s. The complexity of things, trying trying to show that in film, so it was edgy in that way. But the way S- Sally Kellerman's character Hot Lips Ohulahan is is treated, and she is treated in the TV show as a little bit of a, a punchline as well. To be fair, particularly but, in the earlier seasons. Right. Yeah. But in this film, because of, like going for the R-rated and the nudity and stuff, like there's there's a whole conspiracy to uh, knock down the, the tent where she's showering so that everybody sees her naked to sort of bring her down to size. And I think it's a little bit of a anti-authority because she was coming in and, and being the authority. The Robert Duvall character is uh, treated quite poorly too. And I, I, I get some of that because he's shown to become a hypocrite a little bit as the screenplay goes. But anybody that is asking these guys to act like professionals then uh, becomes the target for basically the entire camp there. So yeah. But I, I, and it seems I, to I justify that bullying, which really is what yeah, it amounts to. Yeah. yeah, I, I guess maybe I'm blinded a little bit here, and I'm more positive than I should be, uh, because I, I am a fan of Robert Altman, and I, I love his mm-hmm. style of filmmaking, and I don't mind that amount of improvisation. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's fair, but that might be a, again, the, the, the sequence with the dentist might be a way to trim the film as opposed to deal with the improvisation, because it, it, it does, it, it does tell the story and convey the relationships and moves things forward but tries to show the scenes in as realistic uh, a manner possible i mean we have uh again it's part of the satire but we have a big long sequence about a football a football <laughs> yeah. game where they they kind of create this football team from from nothing and then they recruit this uh former nfl player to play for them and the uh the football game is a total bloodbath and they're just you know um uh, and it's just like the absurdity of of what they're doing and how they're spending their time when serving the country i guess which is part of it yeah i, I think it works i know some people who are doctors who really really like this movie um mm-hmm. i think because it kind of shows it you know a different side to medicine i think it acknowledges some trauma particularly with war-based uh um, surgeries but it to me in some places it's dated and it's flawed yeah. it's considered a classic yet there are some flaws there for sure paul newman is butch cassidy and the sundance kid is robert redford Catherine Ross is at a place. Dynamite's ready, Butch. Well, that ought to do it. Think there's enough dynamite there, Butch? Most of this is true, 
and all of it blazes with action. You've never met a pair like Butch and Sundance. Well, we're back in business, boys and girls. Outlaws with style, in a class all their own. You know, when I was a kid, I always thought I was gonna grow up to be a hero. Don't tell me how to rob a bank. I know how to rob a bank. And anything you ask of me, I'll do, except one thing. I won't watch you die. I think it would be considered a fairly important moment in cinematic history when we got the pairing of Paul Newman and Robert Redford together for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, also directed by George Roy Hill. And they were paired again a few years later for the Best Picture winning movie, The Sting. Yes. However, there was uh, there was not a, there was always talk of a third film with Newman and Redford because of their just natural on-screen chemistry. It never happened. Uh, as I understand it, uh, there's a novel, uh, A Walk in the Woods, that Robert Redford bought. And he had hoped that it would have been uh, a movie that he would have directed with Paul Newman and himself. It ended up, uh, Paul Newman had died by that point, And Nick Nolte uh, played Newman's role in the movie, as I understand it. So, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, based on real outlaws. And so it's uh, set in Wyoming in the early 1900s. And Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they're leaders of a band of outlaws. Outlaws, the hole in the wall gang. And after a train robbery goes wrong, they find themselves on the run with a posse on their heels. And uh, the solution that is come up with by Butch, played by uh, Paul Newman, is to go to Bolivia. And this is a Western, it's an adventure film. Most of the movie is a chase film, one of the most elaborate chases in the history of cinema and slowest at times i'm sorry that sounds like a criticism it isn't (laughs) and it's also a comedy and newman Mm -hmm. are there also it's very important to mention uh, catherine ross Catherine yes. Edda Place, who is, she's an interesting character. She she is uh, the Sundance Kid's girlfriend, yet the most memorable sequence and scene that she has is uh, this bicycle ride to the song Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head by Burt Bacharach, who, who uh, created the music for this movie uh, with Newman. And I guess maybe, maybe I'll start off with a criticism here, and then you can feel free to yell at me if you want. Because um, <laughs> I get the sense you really like this movie, is that Ross seemed to have a more natural chemistry with Paul Newman than with Robert Redford. But really, it's about Redford and Newman's chemistry as uh, two leading men. And we had the veteran Paul Newman there and and the kid, Robert Redford, had not been, uh, mm-hmm. was not as well known. And this movie started to lead into the career that he has now had for many, many decades. Yes. So what do you think of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Well, uh, first of all, I, w- I want to say that I think that the chemistry that these two actors have was much more obvious in the sting. Okay. Uh, I think that might be because in in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, um, the relationship is supposedly a little closer to eat, whereas in the sting, um, the relationship is much more of a mentor mm-hmm. student relationship which just makes more sense in the context of these two actors. You know, Newman had already proven he was the greatest actor alive. And to see Redford as his equal, well, you know, somehow maybe the subtlety wasn't there for Redford the way it always 
was for Newman. So I'm obviously a Newman fan. Yeah, but they're both movie stars. Uh, and I'm not saying they don't have that kind of chemistry. It just it came out more in the comic moments than it did in the other moments. Okay. And, uh, um, and like you, it did feel as though uh, Newman and Ross just sort of clicked together. But then the characters did too. Mm-hmm. I, Maybe I, the problem is that it just didn't feel like Redford and Ross had any chemistry really. So it was harder to imagine them having a relationship with each other. I, I, I feel <laughs> like this was the late 60s and so this is a couple things I'm going to and this is not just me coming up with this this is stuff I, I've read and looked into reading some things into this film more than the surface story itself uh, again talking about the political landscape and a few other things I think there was a little bit of a suggestion here that they were a menage a trois as it were that she mm-hmm. almost had two boyfriends here but they couldn't do it be that overt about it when uh, this film was released and so they have this moment with Newman just to show that they have this little comment like oh I don't know why did you end up with him you you, you should have ended up with me or something like that the, the other piece is a lot of people uh, this was an enormous hit and uh, did yeah quite well critically as well uh, is that this concept of this posse chasing after Butch and Sundance they kind of represent the authority at that time in the Vietnam era that were trying to stop those who are part of the revolution and anti-war movements and the Butch and Sundance represented that that they had to run away from the authorities to be able to uh, to do what what they needed to do and also much like in my opinion a better movie Bonnie and Clyde does the banks that they're robbing from are also kind of authority figures at this time yeah. and they're they're sticking it to the authority figures and running away so butch and sundance are folk heroes like bonnie and clyde are in many ways so that that's that's all there for it what i'm struggling with here i haven't watched the movie as many times as you have is this time watching it why i with all these like two actors i absolutely love and i actually like uh Catherine ross even though her career i think it was kind of the graduate this and I, she was in the uh the first film version of the stepford wives her career didn't certainly wasn't as big as those uh, as the other two but yeah. I like the actors Conrad L. Hall was one of the great cinematographers he shot this film it's, it's beautifully photographed it is um, yeah, yeah. beyond I, I think just about any other film of that time period yeah and and he had a lot of say of what was going on visually but why can't I get excited about this movie the way that I'm maybe excited about some of the other ones we're talking about I don't know the answer to that no, no it's, um, I, I'm just trying to figure it out because I think I liked it more the first time I saw it mm-hmm. but what I liked was very um, superficial uh, I, I liked the photography I liked how it looked I liked some of those like buddy moments in here uh, with with Redford and Newman but this time it almost felt like and because I, I you know I like long movies and I, I have a pretty good attention span movies seem to drag for me hmm. it, it's never had that effect for me even in those scenes when they're uh, trying to escape the posse that's hunting them down they're riding through the desert they're climbing over the rocks the sequence that ends pretty nicely with uh, you know I can't swim and they leap off the cliff yeah, into the river um, famous that uh, you know that does drag a little bit I'll, I'll give you that but a lot of the rest of it does me anyway um, there, there are so many things about it that at the time were a, a really great surprise. Um, the use of music with the the sequences, of the bank robberies, the uh, uh, which of course went very swiftly and very smoothly. Mm-hmm. They're a well-oiled machine. Another of the remarkable things about it that wasn't really true in comedies that I can remember anyway was the way this female character is treated. She was anything but a stereotype. Yeah. She was a school teacher who might perhaps have a relationship with 
two men, the one that she definitely has a relationship mm-hmm. is a bank robber, for heaven's sake. Any, anything but the image that will, at the time would have had of a woman who was a school teacher back in that day. So that's quite remarkable, the fact that they give her that other dimension and that yeah. Also Never the changed. fact that, that though she does go along with them and even runs away to Bolivia with them, yep. she insists it's going to be on her terms. Mm-hmm. And when it's no longer on her terms, she leaves. Yep. And that's the way it is. She's not um, controlled by this need to have a man define her life, which was, uh, I'm not going to say it wasn't there in movies, but I certainly don't remember it in any comedies. She's treated with more respect, uh, even though it's in the Old West. And again, we just talked about MASH. The women in MASH yeah. are not treated um, with that much respect. I mean, I like Ross's yeah. performance. I like the character. Apparently, the original uh, concept was that she was supposed to be a, a prostitute, but they thought she looked um, th- that she looked a little bit too young and clean cut, so they changed it to a school teacher after the fact um, when they, when they went to shoot it. So, well, I think that I think that was brilliant. Yeah, no, it was. It was better. The, the the prostitutes in the, the story, by the way, it, it was kind of fun to be reminded of the fact that one of them is played by Cloris Leachman. Yes, we would have been talking about in, as well in the last picture show. Um, yeah, I a couple of other things I want to mention. Uh, apparently, uh, which I think is magical. Uh, you know, sometimes these sequences that are very Hollywood or whatever feel kind of forced. Like the raindrops keep falling in my head sequence. I, I, I think it's a, just a magical sequence. And that was Catherine Ross's favorite scene because the second unit shot it, George Roy Hill wasn't there. Because George okay. Roy Hill, and reading up on him a little bit to get ready for uh, talking about uh, this, while he was a brilliant filmmaker, he was a giant control freak. I mean, we've we've talked informally, well, we talked even last time about Hitchcock, right? And uh, Conrad L. Hall, for one of the train sequences, uh, he needed somebody else, an extra person to run the camera, and Catherine Ross was there. So she took one of the other cameras, and uh, Roy Hill didn't make it known until afterwards, but he was furious about this, and he just bit her head off that she was on set and doing that and banned her from the set unless she was acting, unless it was scenes that she was acting in for the rest of the shoot. And he called the shots. Nothing, he was quite inflexible as as I understand it. It's interesting that, you know, Newman and Redford must have enjoyed working with him enough for to reunite for the sting. But there's no doubt a talented filmmaker and he was nominated for best director for this and he won for the sting uh, some years later. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so there's just a, a, a couple things there with the, those relationships. Another sequence that to me that drags on, it does feature Burt Bacharach's music score so maybe you have less problems with it than I do, is when they're showing how they get from where they are to Bolivia. It's just a whole series of still pictures Mm -hmm. to uh, this kind of ragtime type of uh, score. And the pictures kind of speed up or slow down based on the rhythm of the music. I felt like that that transition to the third act just went on way, 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 way too long. I I remember it kind of distracting me the first time I, I saw the movie. This time it still distracted me. I, I, I think I'm supposed to find it kind of cutesy and charming. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit an, annoyed by it. And it, it, it notches the entire film. I'm probably picky for a very short sequence. But if I'm putting it up against these other movies that we're talking about, if I'm finding something that, you know, I, I can I can go with that really long chase, which leads to them jumping off of the cliff, uh, yeah. a little bit more than I can put up with like a, a five to ten minute transition to the third act, which seemed purely to show off off Burke Bacharach's score and maybe that was part of the deal to get him to do the music is that you really had to feature his his music because I mean he had other projects and other things he could have been doing but I, I just don't like that particular bit I don't know how you feel about it um well I I didn't 
find that to be a problem, though I can I can recognize criticism of it. I think it might have been that that kind of idea, that kind of approach is something that this filmmaker, you know, uses in various ways in other films as well. And I think it's more successful in this thing yes, because it it's more consistently a part of the, the whole way of telling the story. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, I, I think you're, 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 I'm, I'm guessing you're saying it doesn't work because it doesn't really fit with how the rest of the story is told. And you're right, it doesn't. Um, perhaps if they had used that technique a little more, um, or more as as a way of marking the different chapters of the story, which is how that's done in the Sting. Uh, I think then it would be more successful. I, I don't have a problem with it as in itself, but maybe it doesn't quite fit in the movie. But then, frankly, the the whole raindrops keep falling on my head yes. thing doesn't fit in the movie no, either. It, it, it's really it's it's trying to um, revamp the the movie western for a uh, late 1960s audience in some ways and having yeah. modern music in there. Uh, we have people who do that, you know, people like Quentin Tarantino play around with, with, with different eras. And, and I mean, he, Tarantino had a gangster rap in a Western he directed. So I just, for me, it, it just kind of stopped the film and just went on too long. I just, it was like too much of that. If they had cut that back a little bit. And again, this, you know, much like you were saying, there was some stuff in MASH that could have been cut back. I think that, you know, we're, we're kind of on hold, you know, and I, I get it's, it would have taken a lot to get to Bolivia. Uh, and it's a photo story of, of that journey. But I felt it feels almost like they ran out of money for shooting sequences in New York and other things. And so they just decided to do it through, uh, through pictures and, and music instead. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think you like Butch casting and Sundance kid more than I do, but perhaps we'd agree. Okay. This is another one where the beginning scene is brilliant, especially Robert Redford's acting is, is amazing. And it's so well shot. Same story with the very last scene, the very last scene, I think much, you know, much like, uh, some of those great movies of the late uh, 60s and early 70s it ends maybe not in a way an audience would be satisfied with but it's the perfect ending for the movie and um, yeah and for the characters I, I loved it something I again looking into the history of this movie I had something I wasn't aware of it and apparently it still holds a record for winning the most uh, BAFTAs British Academy Awards it won every every single category it was nominated in it, it won the only loss it had was had uh, Redford and Newman against each other for best oh. actor Redford won Newman lost in that in that case it wasn't it was still it won four Academy Awards it just wasn't as successful as um, at uh, at the BAFTA Awards there I think there's a lot a lot to like here and I would say people who haven't seen Butch Casting the Sinance Kid should check it out play Misty for me for Clint Eastwood an invitation to terror you ever find yourself being completely smothered by somebody? There's no escape in passion. There's no escape in speed. There's no escape from terror. You will change the locks, huh? Nobody asked you to wait for it. You're not jumping me, Buster Blue Eyes. Get off my back, Evelyn. Play Misty for me. Get off my back. Play Misty for me. Get off my back. Play Misty for me. Get off my back. Play Misty for me. The most terrifying words you'll ever hear. Play Misty for me. 
the screen's most frightening plunge into terror. Have to get you all nice for David. I hope he likes what he sees when he walks in here. Because that's what he's taking to hell with him. Just hope we're lucky enough to grab her the next time she tries it. Tries what? To kill you. The next scream you hear will be your own. Play Misty for me. I, I, I don't know why. Uh, it's interesting that I've, I've been reviewing a lot of Clint Eastwood movies so far in the first nine episodes of this show. Uh, I believe this is uh, a fourth or fifth. And Play Misty for me was the directorial debut of Clint Eastwood. And yeah. it's uh, from 1971. He plays this uh, rather high-profile disc jockey in uh, Carmel, California. Not coincidentally where Eastwood lived and continued to live to this day and at one point after this movie came out became the mayor of Carmel oh, um, oh right yes I'd forgotten that yeah. and uh, anyway his life gets turned upside down after he has a romantic encounter you might want to say a one night stand with uh, a fairly obsessed fan played by Julie Walters people who are fans of the uh, show Arrested Development um, would know her as the mother on that show and uh, it's complicated as well because he has this on again off again uh, girlfriend named Toby played by Don Donna Mills in here. A um, couple other kind of fun things about it. So Eastwood shot it where he lived. So it was actually a smart thing to do as a first-time director. If you know a location really well, then um, use it as a setting for your film. And he called uh, upon uh, Don Siegel, who is one of uh, two mentors um, that he had as far as being a director. Uh, the other is Sergio Leone, who directed yeah, him yeah. in the uh, Italian Westerns, the Man With No Name trilogy. Don Siegel is the director of the of, uh, uh, at least the, the first uh, Dirty Harry film and a few other Clint Eastwood uh, starring films. And it was the first time Clint had directed, but the first time that Don Siegel had acted. And he plays uh, the bartender in uh, in the bar where uh, where, uh, where where Clint uh, encounters uh, Evelyn, played by uh, Jessica Walter. She calls into his radio program almost nightly and says, play Misty for me. But turns out that she's a fairly unstable human being, as as we start to see. The other thing, I always like to get these kind of nerdy uh, uh, trivia things in here. There's a, <laughs> You're a, not a nerd. <laughs> I, I am, I am. Um, Sherry Lansing, who is a very prominent uh, film producer, and uh, she worked for, I believe, Paramount in the late 80s. Clint Eastwood, years after Play Misty for Me came out, uh, said to Sherry Lansing, uh, you owe me a beer, because she was the producer that got Fatal Attraction to be made. And Fatal Attraction, if you follow it, is pretty much Play Misty for Me, but just in in a, in a, in a big city. So, yeah. So I, Yeah, I, in a lot of ways. That's, that's true. Never thought about it that way, but yeah, I guess so. So what do you think of uh, Play Misty for Me? Because you said it, it was always included and in, often it was a Clint Eastwood themed uh, drive-in or yes. it would just play over and over again. It was. It was It was always that one extra that was inserted that didn't fit. But of course, this doesn't fit with the Eastwood movies that had been made to that point. Mm -hmm. um, completely different kind of character, completely different subject matter. He wasn't playing the, 
rough and rugged hero of the Westerns. Uh, by the way, one of those Westerns is my favorite Clint Eastwood movie from at least that era. High Plains Drifter. High Plains, High Plains Drifter, yeah. And he wasn't playing Harry, what's his name? Dirty Harry, the, the overly tough cop with no sense of morality other than, you know, if you're bad, I'm going to shoot you. Yeah. Which seems to be, you know, still a very prevalent attitude among those those uh, that make up stories. It's too bad, you know, they really should read the law uh, to uphold it. This is what I would want to say all the time. Anyway, I think that was one of the reasons why I quite liked Play Misty for me back then, because it was just different. And of course, it's at times visually beautiful because it's got on the coast, California. The Pacific Ocean is a pretty darn nice backdrop for everything. Great shots. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the image of Clint Eastwood uh, driving in his convertible, yeah, along the cliffs of uh, of uh, of Carmel and and yeah. in Monterey, California. It's um, I, I I've been I've been there only for like a one day road trip, but I, mm-hmm. I I really enjoy that part of California. I'd like to spend more time there. Yeah. Uh, so there is that. You know, that said, it's <laughs> it's not a great film, but for the time, it was a little. Um, courageous in that it the story was essentially about someone suffering from a pretty severe mental illness personality disorder an obsessive compulsive and whatever whatever else you might say about a stalker and so the character is interestingly created that said even though she won awards for that performance is kind of over the top yeah i think it's it's more of a caricature of what someone might think someone like that is like of course they were going for scary and she definitely gives eastwood scary oh it is very um yeah you you think there's points where they might be playing it safe but then it's elevated and elevated and elevated yeah she she got a i think it was a golden globe nomination for best actress drama that that was the only award i i saw that it uh, that got got attention for um it's kind of like psycho light (laughs) yeah and it's I mean, it's in the wake of Psycho, where that was that was kind of the approach to playing a, a character who was mentally unstable. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm maybe a, a touch forgiving of it. I I do like thrillers, and I seem to be a sucker for this type of movie. And I feel mm-hmm. like in some ways this movie was a bit of a pioneer. Uh, yeah. The the other movie that was uh, mentioned in some ways in the, in the same uh, breath, Fatal Attraction and Misery, even though Misery was based on a Stephen King novel, but that the film version for sure kind of had its roots in uh, in Play Misty for me, even though this like the the stalker fan idea is uh, laid out differently in 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 Misery than it is here. Yeah. I, I think Eastwood showed a lot of talent as a director with this uh, great first feature I, I seem to have some sort of strange affection for this one of the five that we're talking about like I, I seem to really like and appreciate all of them and I feel like some of them I'm more willing to defend than others and this is one I I kind of want to defend in some ways there's a lot of kind of cool stuff that Eastwood does as well he he actually shot while the Monterey Pop Festival was happening yes yes um, he, he knows music he knows jazz music and this this played in Played really well into uh, his world in, in many different ways at the time. Again, you you work with what you know. Yeah. You get his footing. The other thing that I appreciate about this, some of Eastwood's kind of post-Western hero work, even though you could drag 
get some interesting themes from those westerns as well is Eastwood in many ways he his films would promote kind of a feminist uh, ideology and this and uh, the original I know a few years ago there's a remake of The Bug- Beguiled but The Beguiled is another one and in some ways Unforgiven as well many years later had this idea of men who use and abuse women and then they actually end up having to suffer the consequences of this. Right. So he is, I mean, he's this hotshot DJ. He he thinks he can get away with anything and mm-hmm. he sees an attractive woman and, oh, it feeds his ego if that woman is really into him. And he doesn't think anything of sleeping with her and then he just wants to rush her out the door the next day. This woman will not go away. And, you know, and and when he finds different ways to get rid of her, then she she tries to kill herself. She, you know, in his place. Then he has to take care of her. Uh, and it just, gets more and more elevated so her actions and the things that she does i mean you know i guess just superficially watching this movie you see her as the villain and the antagonist but she's also a a very very sick woman who had been used sexually for one night i mean she went into it consensually but by by this guy and then he had to actually face up to what his womanizing had done you know and he he doesn't admit it to his girlfriend at, at first and he when it gets really really extreme he has to and so I appreciate that angle, I guess. Yeah. And that's, that's what I've always looked at with, with this movie, as well as it being an entertaining uh, psycho thriller and uh, kind of an interesting concept and quite disturbing, very, very disturbing in places. It's in the realms of a horror movie, I would I would say. I mean, I think it's, even though it would be labeled as a suspense or thriller, I think I would also call it a 70s horror movie and it was a great decade for horror movies. But it, it has a greater message to it, I think, than some people might, you know, naturally get out of it. So that's why I'm a little bit more of a defender yeah. of Play Misty for me. But I do agree that Walter's, that characterization now of somebody with a personality disorder is 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 too cartoonish. It's too over the top. So yeah. she's really nice yeah. and sweet. Then she'll suddenly turn nasty and swear at somebody and put on this kind of, for lack of a better term, like a, a Chucky uh, evil yeah. Yeah. voice on or something, which is just creeps the, the heck out of you when you see it. And it's like, I don't know if anybody would actually act that way. You know, I'm not sure it would yeah. come up that way. But yeah, I th- think she plays some things maybe a touch too big. I don't know if she was directed in that way. Eastwood has a little bit of a problem with having his villains be a, a touch too dimensional at points. We see this with some of the villains in the Dirty Harry movies as well. So evil, you know? Yeah. And I think it was kind of a mix of like, they're trying to create a three-dimensional character with Walters, but then the way she's written or directed is just, she's so evil that it becomes too much like a cartoon. And if if that performance had been a bit more subtle, I think, you know, it might have an easier time kind of defending this. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I, I agree with you pretty much completely. I used to have a softer spot for this movie than I have now, but but still, I think, or it's time it was it was brave and interesting for all the reasons that we've talked about particularly it's more or less feminine attitude of a feminist sorry feminist attitude and eastwood's hero is not very heroic at all he's flawed yeah. and he uses uh and he uses that character well to to point out what's wrong with with the society this guy is to blame for all his problems in that sense though i also have a criticism in a sense because that kind of makes this into a bit of a tragedy doesn't it and his problems are his own fault yeah. so 
the happy ending doesn't feel right anymore. Well, I, I mean, relatively happy. How, ha how happy is it? I mean, you know, uh, well, I mean, they, you could say that, you know, when you get into a little bit of spoilers here, but like this relationship with his, you know, more uh, steady girlfriend, like they're going to go and live happily ever after. She knows that he's a womanizer, that he could cheat on her and he caused this situation and put them in a very dangerous and bad situation. I think there'll be some tension and some trauma afterwards. It's not going to be, it's not a, a Disney ending for... No, no, it's not a Disney ending, but but I think he should be left alone at the end. Mm -hmm. I think she should finally say this is yeah. no more. Yeah. Um, it, it's clear that whatever happened before our actual story begins was the reason why she took a break from, from him and why he's yeah. trying to get her back. Yeah. So when she finds out that he cheated on her again, that should have been the last straw. Mm -hmm. um, now, they were technically not together at the time it happened right right yeah. so i don't know if that's, that's but, a but then but, I, yeah. well, but but he has indicated to her that he'd like to get together again and despite that he cheated yeah. um i think maybe um i would i would feel better about the story itself if that's what happened if if their relationship yeah. no longer existed uh, then it would feel more like a tragedy too but maybe it's also partly because i don't think donna mills performance is all that strong well she's forget i mean as 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 big as Ju jessica walter is i mean you may, you remember her like you yes, remember that performance yeah. and this yeah again i've seen this movie a few times but i i tend to forget about about the toby character she really cannot keep up with with eastwood and walter as being anywhere close to being as interesting i mean there, there are side characters here who are who are a lot more interesting yeah in many ways yeah uh, bartender for example the, uh, the the woman who uh who comes to his house and and she gets attacked yeah. oh yes absolutely yeah like yeah. she she's a really interesting presence in the movie yeah, yeah. and a strong performance and I, I donna mills some of her lines are delivered so artificially that uh just can't believe yeah I mean, that's a fair point. I mean, I, I, I felt like I was kind of coming in here because I, I, I sense that you have some issues with Walter's performance. Ready to defend that a little bit. I can't defend some things, but some other things I, I can yeah. because of the, the time that it, the time that it came out for sure. Yeah. Uh, once again, and this is kind of the case like this, this movie is approaching 50 years old, but I did see this with a lot of Eastwood movies kind of in the seventies too, where you would have a very flamboyant gay character who was, very much uh, kind of a stereotype. Yeah. You kind of that one scene role. And again, that that's just something kind of like some things we talked about with MASH or some of the others where it just for, for a moment, it took me out of the movie. And I remember yeah. that the first yeah. time I saw it and I, I kept going, okay, it doesn't make it right, but it was, what, 1971. So yeah. so it, they, they just did a, a really, really poor job of that. And I, I've seen some characters that were represented much worse in some of those Dirty Harry movies and some of the action movies that he Eastwood did um, during that yeah. decade and into the 80s a bit as well. So yeah, but I I appreciate this. I think I, I was sort of saying uh, the last episode I reviewed A Perfect World, and I I think some people actually thought that Eastwood just started directing when Unforgiven happened when he when he won, but he'd been directing movies for uh, more than 20 years by the yeah. time Unforgiven uh, came around. And, you know, they, they weren't always like that prominent or flashy, but I, I think he learned over time to become a very, very good director. And this was his first film and he wrapped it early and he came in under budget. And that's why the studios, this was a Universal film, actually. He did four, his first directing gigs were with Universal before uh, Warner Brothers. 
but the studios have always let him do whatever he wants because he comes in under budget because he only does a couple takes and mm-hmm. he doesn't like to rehearse a whole lot and do a lot of talking about things. He just shoots the movie and and then they do it. So And uh, I, I think this is a worthy entry in his canon. So while there are some flaws to it, I, I, I probably like it more than I should. Play Misty for me, I would recommend it. I would say though, if you are not, or if you're sensitive to violence and you don't like the thriller horror genre, genre um probably other movies that we're talking about will, will suit you better um probably yeah though compared to a lot of the films that we first think of when we say horror genre let's say there are a lot worse than this one. Oh yeah you know, sure. yeah this but is if, nothing if, like if, the shining if you don't like violent movies i'm saying right yeah you, you i don't think you'd appreciate play misty for me but if you yeah. like this genre and you uh like clint eastwood and have not seen this i think it's worth checking out for sure Show starts in eight minutes. Yum, yum. It's time for a tasty and refreshing snack. starts in seven minutes. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. All right, Tom, thank you uh, for coming back again to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show for a second time. So uh, time for the math part. So you were given 50 points to work with, as was I, to spread among the five films. And Mm -hmm. I'm interested how many points you would award to Woody Allen's Bananas. I have it listed as five points. All right, then uh, five easy pieces. Well, in this collection, I think this is by quite a bit the best film. I gave it 20. 20 points. That's a big, big chunk of the, the prize there. It is, it is. I think it deserves it, though. Yeah, directed by uh, Bob Raffleson, once again, uh, very much the founder of this independent movement in the late uh, 60s and 70s. So I don't I don't think we talked about him as much. He put a lot of himself into five easy pieces, as did Nicholson. So how many points did you give Robert Altman's MASH? I gave MASH nine points. And Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I gave that one 10. And then play Misty for me. Six points for play Misty? Okay. All right. So, um... I really like Woody Allen. People know I like Woody Allen. I get I get flack because I say that I like Woody Allen because of whatever personal opinions people have about him. But I, I see this as one of his more immature early efforts. And so I only gave five points, but it matches what you gave. So Bananas earns 10 points. Uh, I gave, uh, I started to spread the points out here a little bit. I gave 11 to five easy pieces. I, I really, really appreciate this movie more and more. I gave 11 points to MASH. I think we we disagreed a little bit. I appreciate Altman's style. It brought out a job in the military, which had not been given a lot of attention, I don't mm-hmm. think. Well, that's true, how, yeah. how it's done is I think the satire like, with a lot of Altman movies like Stanley Kubrick movies or even the Coen Brothers movies after you watched it the first time you're kind of like what the heck did I just watch <laughs> but then you kind of need to re-watch it and watch it a few times to spot some things and I, again I, I, I really appreciate about that about Altman and I'm a fan probably unreasonably so 
so I give quite a few points to to Mash as well. So it gets 20. Your 9 and my 11. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, I, I gave 11 points to as well. So it gets uh, 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's no doubt a classic. I think my my criticisms of it had more to do with me. That's why I was putting some questions to you, kind of like, am I wrong? And I almost feel like I'm wrong. And then I, it was just whatever mood I was in when I saw it this time that I I, I just was less excited watching it of, of the five, probably the least excited uh, watching it of out of all these, even though I'm giving more points to it than I am uh, to uh, at least one of our other films here. And once again, we're, we're kind of in different places here. I gave the most points, 12 points to play Misty for me. I really like the thriller genre. I like Eastwood as a director. I think he picked a good role for himself. I mean, I'm not sure it was that much of a stretch, but uh, he did a lot of things as to kind of separate himself from his image as a Western hero. And he, he worked with people that he knew and uh, kind of started to develop his own style. And he created quite an effective genre film, which was then copied for bigger budgets by other, other Hollywood films. I mean, Fatal Attraction was an enormous hit, way, way bigger hit than Play Misty for me. And got Oscar nominations uh, galore and was considered one of the better movies of the late 1980s but beat for beat you know it it does very much copy what's done in play misty for me so he was on to something here that uh might not be the most glamorous or the most artistically pleasing of, of genres but i i appreciate what he did here with that mm-hmm. so where does that leave us for points here the uh big winner turns out to be five easy pieces with 31 then butch cassie and the sundance kid with 21 mash pretty close by with 20 18 points for play misty for me then as i mentioned this is a really tough one for me because i own every woody allen film um, oh, oh. It's available and has been released, but I have to break up, it, no matter what, each of these movies was connected to a collection. So I have to break up my collection and Bananas with 10 points is has to be uh, uh, shed from my shelf. So uh, Tom, what are uh, you wanting me to do with Bananas? Well, when I was thinking about which of these, uh, each of these, what, what if each of them were the lowest? I learned my lesson because last time you and I completely disagreed and uh, a film, the, the, the film that was shed was definitely not one that I would have expected. No. So I, I pondered this and I thought, well, the theme might be the way to go. Because if Play Misty for me had lost, that one in particular, mm-hmm. the perfect thing to do with it would be to give it a respectful burial at the base of the big screen at the Sundown Drive. <laughs> that would be perfect. Yeah. Illegal, of course. To do it, you'd have to um, trespass and... Uh, oh, you mean uh, to actually get on to, like, not... Actually uh, get on the grounds, oh, wow. and dig a hole, and bury it. Um, this so is the a next pre-podcast. Thing, I don't have bail money that comes from... Exactly. <laughs> So the next best thing would be to somehow dispose of the film um, as reasonably closely to that spot as possible. And I'm not even sure it would be legal to bury this in the ditch uh, beside the road closest to the screen. Uh, But this is what I want you to do with it. And it's kind of cheating, but I think it would be just wrong to break up the set. So what I think you need to do, what I want you to do is to put bananas into a drawer somewhere so that you can honestly say it's been shed from the shelf, but now it's in a drawer. And that way you won't break up the set because breaking up the set would just be wrong. Well, I probably shouldn't have said that. 
because then you you might have had a different idea for it if I hadn't have said that I own all the Woody Allen movies. Oh, no, I, I I know how you feel about Woody Allen. Yeah, I didn't realize you had the full set. If there's one person in the world who does have the complete set, it would be you. Fair enough then. Yeah. So we'll have to figure out some safe way for me to get these movies back then, because uh, you have them all at your place uh, with our our COVID nineteen uh, uh, situation here. Well, one one day this too will end. Yes. And we will be able to get back together again. We can review movies uh, back at my place, you know, with the, the mic and everything and not over Zoom. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, just before we go here, I just want to, uh, as I, as I uh, mentioned earlier, but I want to mention again, please check out my friend Larry Parsons' uh, podcast, Rank and Review. Uh, he uh, drops a, a show every two weeks, kind of like I do. It's on uh, the weeks where I don't uh, release a, a program uh, and it's well worth listening to. Please, if you have some feedback on this show or any show, please email me at shelfsheddingmovieshow at gmail.com. Give the Facebook group, uh, The Shelf Shedding Movie Show, a like. Please uh, share this this uh, podcast. I am trying to get this out to more people and kind of a, a share off of Facebook uh, seems to be working. So uh, until next time, I want to thank Tom and please enjoy. And despite uh, our isolation or staying at home, keep watching the movies.